Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. There's a wonderful summary of the entirety of the Christian faith given us at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus came into Galilee and began to announce God's Gospel God's saving message, God's good news about salvation and immortality. And what did Jesus say? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming soon. Get ready for the kingdom and repent. That's to say, reorientate your life in a brand new direction. Adopt a brand new set of priorities and a new horizon, a completely new outlook on life and believe in the gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the gospel that is in that context of the kingdom of God. There's only one gospel in the New Testament, and it's always the gospel about the kingdom of God. That's perhaps the most fundamental of all biblical ideas to be grasped by intelligent Bible readers. There's one saving message. It's the gospel as Jesus preached it. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 says that Jesus was the original preacher of the gospel. Today we seem to have forgotten that elementary fact. Many Christians seem to think that the death and resurrection of Jesus forms the totality of the gospel, but that cannot be true. If we examine the accounts of the ministry of Jesus for some three and a half years, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. He sent out his disciples, first twelve, then seventy, to preach the very same gospel of the kingdom, and yet in Luke chapter 18, when the disciples were first confronted with the idea that Jesus was going to die and be raised from the dead, they didn't even understand what he was saying. And yet you realize they'd been preaching the gospel of the kingdom in company with Jesus, and under his tutoring, they'd been preaching that gospel of the kingdom, the gospel in fact, for some three and a half years without even understanding that Jesus was going to die and be raised. Now that must prove to any unprejudiced reader of the Scriptures that the Gospel is more than the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come just to save us by dying for our sins. Important as that fact is, and important as His resurrection is, of course, also, but He came to seek and save what was lost, and He did it by laboring at preaching at announcing the gospel of the kingdom. The parable of the sower is entirely clear. It states that when anyone hears the message of the kingdom, Matthew 13:19, the devil is ready to snatch away that message from his heart, the message of the kingdom, you notice, the gospel as Jesus preached it. The devil is intent on getting rid of that message from your mind, from your heart, so that you cannot believe that message of the kingdom and be saved. You'll find that passage about being saved as a result of accepting the message of the kingdom of God, Jesus' gospel, in Luke chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And I note in passing that Jesus says that some are Christians for a while. Today we hear much about once saved, always saved. That's like saying that when the starting gun goes off in a hundred-yard dash, you've already run the race. That's obviously not true. Christianity is a race. You have to survive to the end. Salvation in the New Testament is predominantly something lying in the future. 
You remember how Paul said in Romans 13 that salvation is now nearer to us than when we first believed. Not further away in the past, but nearer to us as coming in the future. That's the way the New Testament views salvation. It's something to be aimed at. It's something we're working towards. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which we've been saved the moment we're born again by reception of the kingdom message, that seed message which must take root in our hearts in order that fruit can be produced. There's a great sense in which we're being saved, and our Greek New Testament says that a number of times. And there's a much greater sense, and in fact, the majority of salvation verses point to the future. They simply state that we're en route for salvation, that salvation is going to be granted to us at the second coming via resurrection, if we've died before the second coming, and by being caught up to meet the Lord in the air as he descends to this earth to take up his residence in Jerusalem as the divinely appointed and legally entitled ruler and sovereign on the restored throne of David in Jerusalem, according to the message of all the prophets of Israel. God's scheme in the Bible, his operation kingdom, his plan and purpose to restore peace to this tortured earth is essentially simple. What confuses it is the notion that we as human beings are destined to be disembodied souls the moment we die. The idea of a disembodied soul does not come from the Bible. No Bible verse says the Distinguished Interpreter's Bible Dictionary. No Bible verse authorizes the idea that our soul or spirit departs to heaven or hell the moment we die. The problem is that we have a vast machinery of ecclesiastical organization in place which constantly propagates that very idea. Unfortunately, and unwittingly, no doubt, that idea is propagated in the name of Christ, but would Jesus have recognized the alien neoplatonic idea that souls can be separated from their bodies and go on subsisting consciously? Jesus was a Hebrew, and scholars today recognize that the Hebrew way of thinking about man is that he's a psychosomatic unit. When the man dies, the whole man dies, and the only way out of death is via resurrection of the whole man, body and soul together, in order to gain immortality in the future kingdom of God and rule as a king on the earth with Messiah for a thousand years. Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. The biblical scheme is not complex. It becomes complex when we begin to read our own cherished traditions into the Bible without careful examination of the source of those traditions. In Acts 17:11, we read of the Berean people, those folk who lived in Berea, who were more noble-minded, Luke reports, than the ones in Thessalonica. And the reason for this noble-mindedness was that they searched and investigated the Scriptures on a daily basis in order to see if what they were hearing was true. Now, I noticed that this was not just the reading of a verse or two or the pondering of a couple of lines of Scripture in a casual manner or even in a devoted manner. It was rather an investigation of the text of Scripture. There are so many biblical issues on the table in America today that they cry out for investigation and examination. Take, for example, Paul's wonderful words in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 about the events of the end of the age and the coming of Christ in power and glory. He said in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, We request you, brethren, 
with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you should not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter claiming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Do you see there that the church was being disturbed by an alien notion about the second coming? Somebody was saying that Jesus was going to come at a time different from the time specified in the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul. There was a question arising in their minds. Will Jesus come immediately or will he come only after certain events have occurred? Well, Paul tackles that question with all urgency. He wants the church to be united, to be of one mind on this important issue of the events of the end of the age. Let no one in any way deceive you, Paul says, for the day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I used to tell you these things? And it appears from the records in the book of Acts that Paul was probably only some few weeks with the Thessalonians, but during that time he gave them a complete outline of the events of the end of the age, about which we today have become considerably confused. The issue here is, when will Jesus reappear? Do certain things have to happen before he comes back? Or may we expect Jesus to appear at any second unannounced? Paul's answer to this question is critically important for our grasp of end-time events. He makes it abundantly clear that certain things have to happen first. The idea that Jesus could come back today is fundamentally not in accordance with the words of Paul here or the words of Jesus in other passages. Paul proceeds to give a clear outline of the sequence of events which may be expected before the return of Christ at the day of the Lord. Paul is concerned with our gathering together with Christ at his second coming, which is the same event as the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul looks forward, as did Daniel, for example, and many other passages of Scripture, to the arrival of a final anti-Christian tyrant, a beast-like creature who will ravage the earth for a limited period, who will persecute Christians, and will finally be destroyed by Christ at his coming. And so in Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 6, Paul says, You know what restrains this anti-Christian figure, so that in his time he will be revealed. I noticed there in passing the strong word revealed. There will be something dazzling and spectacular about the emergence of this final beast-like person, the Antichrist. The mystery of lawlessness and confusion, Paul says in verse 7, is already at work. There's an energy of confusion at work even in the days of Paul some 2,000 years ago. You remember how the Apostle John says there are many Antichrists already at work in his day. And the New Testament gives no hint that things would get better. In fact, Paul spoke of the latter days being characterized by a situation in which evil men would wax worse and worse. Things would go from bad to worse in terms of confusion. 
Far from producing a unified peace, the church would be split, the church would be confused and bewildered by this energy of false teaching which would make it difficult for the truth to survive. And after a period during which this spirit of confusion, the spirit of Antichrist would be at work, then finally, as a climax to those awful events in verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Paul there quotes a verse in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4, and we know then from that connection that Isaiah himself foresaw the career of this final political monster who would persecute the saints and be destroyed by the brightness of the arrival of Jesus in power and glory. Paul gives him a fuller description in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, the one whose coming will be in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Every technique in terms of miracle and supernatural feat will be used by this evil person to attract a crowd. The only solution for the Christian is to be discerning. It's amazing how easily people will be attracted to a miracle. They will assume that the power of God is at work once something supernatural occurs. But Paul advises us that it's the love of the truth which alone can save us from confusion. Because people did not have the love of the truth, he says, they're perishing. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God, our booklet on what happens when you die, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.